So I was deeply tempted to do like a performance art here, a piece here, and just come up and be silent for 10 minutes or something. <laughs> Which would certainly make a point, I suppose. Um, on a more serious note, a few years ago I did participate in a day of silence, which was, uh, has been a nationwide intentional um, day to talk about those voices that we have silenced, particularly LGBTQ voices. So my seminary classmates, not all of them, but some of them and I spent an entire day without speaking, uh, which is a, a long time. I don't know how anybody does 17 years, because a day... Uh, was not something I was prepared to go for a day without speaking, i got to tell you. Um, it was really transformative to think about all the times you speak all day long and whether you really need to and if you should and how you communicate with people if you're not speaking. I did have a little pad of paper and I did write down a few things, particularly my order when we went out to lunch. Anyway... And so I'm glad that every service we have at least a few moments of silence. What's the point of a, a sermon about finding silence if we're not going to experience it at some point? Anyway, have any of you seen the movie Trolls? We've got a few, okay. i got kids, so I see all the animated children's movies. Uh, it came out a couple years ago. It's an animated feature, as I said, about a group of tiny doll-sized, you know, sort of maybe the size of your hand, trolls that love to sing and dance and hug and party, and also about the Bergens, which is this group of much larger sort of us-sized creatures, I suppose, um, that are never happy, except for the one day a year that they get to eat a troll. And sort of, I guess, literally input the happiness into them. Uh, it's a kid's movie and a favorite of my youngest child at the moment in particular. He really likes the singing. Um, I don't need to tell you the whole plot, but I, the stuff I told you is all in the first two minutes, so you haven't missed anything really. Um, but there's a moment where two of the trolls, I will ruin just a tiny part, two of the trolls are in the forest, and one keeps singing and talking and making noise as the other is trying to go to sleep, which we maybe have all had this experience. Um, and one of the things she sings is the Simon and Garfunkel tune, The Sound of Silence, right? Which is pretty funny to think about. A very non-silent song about the sound of something that's not supposed to have sound. And I don't think Paul Simon is being ironic here, but I think he is investigating that sort of paradox in this song. Which brought me back to, what am I supposed to preach in words, out loud, about the virtues of silence? kind of a hard one. And so the longest intentional time of silence I've ever taken was that one day, and probably the longest time I've ever been silent, I was trying to think about this, is maybe for a full weekend back in my bachelor days when I would just stay in the house and, you know, watch football, that kind of thing. So I don't think I've ever gone more than about 48 hours without speaking. Uh, and to be honest, I did not in 48 hours that much, not the not speaking part of it. Um, it also might have had to do something with not even getting out of the house for 48 straight hours, which is not a healthy thing for me, at least. I need to be out and about, get a little activity in. And the silence. So today my life is the farthest thing from silence. I can't think of when I've gone more than an hour or two without speaking, except asleep, 
perhaps. Um, And I'll confess, I don't even like silence much of the time. On those rare occasions I am home alone, I often turn the TV or music on just to have some background noise because it sounds very strange when it's too quiet. And I know other people are like this. I know I'm not the only one. And the truth is that, as much as anything, some of that noise is inside my head. I'm sure all of us are different, but I have trouble finding anything remotely like silence, often not even calm in my head. And I imagine that many of us experience this. This is a real problem. We're bombarded with information all the time from both inside and outside ourselves, and there is so rarely silence or even anything approaching it. Which is why every day, every Sunday, I tell us to try to still our minds because that's the message I need to hear. But if you do this at home even, in some place particularly quiet, you could close your eyes and still your breath and still you will hear noise, right? There's rustling and wind blowing and various mechanical hums from all the machines that are in our houses and lives and the constant clutter of things going on all about us all the time. Even in my quiet neighborhood back in Pinal, I hear things. Which brings me to this. This is why spiritual practice is so important. So what's a spiritual practice? One definition, the definition I'm using today at least, is anything that's a repeated intentional activity that helps ground you and deepen your spiritual life. Because spiritual practice helps with these things. Now, I've tried a lot of forms of meditation and prayer, and to be honest, most of them did not work for me. I imagine there's a countless number of spiritual practices that will not work for any given person. But I'm equally convinced that there is at least one spiritual practice that will work for each person. Now, not all practices involve silence. Some in the exact opposite sense, actually. There are many practices that are quite loud and energetic. There's singing and ecstatic ecstatic dancing, exercise, drumming, a dozen more, a hundred more, a thousand more, probably. But I think that one thing all spiritual practices help foster is a sense of deeper focus, of grounding and finding one's center. Another way to say that might be what I often say here, a way to try to still our busy minds. To give an example for my own family, Kristen loves to bake. It's very much a spiritual practice for her. And personally, I find it really frustrating, not when she bakes, when I bake. I don't like the measuring and the exactness of the steps involved. You have to knead enough, but not too much. That is knead with a K-N, that is. Um, you're supposed to fold in the whipped egg whites but don't stir whatever that means (laughs) it's very frustrating but I know for her and for many others it's soothing and calming and focusing Um, and this is as good a time as any we'll announce it a little later but we're having a baking competition in a couple weeks as part of our stewardship campaign kickoff because I'm really excited because though I don't really love baking I do like trying baked goods. So look for that. And so spiritual practice is about connection and calming and focus and maybe other things too. 
And I was thinking recently of something I learned in seminary, which is not exactly the same as silence and speaking out these things I've been talking about this week and last week together. Um, but they're definitely related, and in my mind, they're, they're connected. There was this idea, or rather multiple ideas, dating back hundreds and thousands of years, about how to approach theology. And so there's schools, there's many, many schools of how to approach theology, but two I'm going to talk about today, and one of them is called apophatic theology. And it proposes that the only way to talk about ultimate reality, God, what you will, is through negation. That is, some things are unknowable, but we can at least know some things that are not true about them and say that, which helps us get a little closer to what is true. I'll get back to that in a second. The sort of companion or opposite piece to apophatic theology is cataphatic theology, that the idea that you can say true, albeit necessarily incomplete, things about God or ultimate reality. So one example might be to say that God is love. Is that everything God is? No, but it's true. And so cataphatic theology attempts to state what a thing is, and apophatic, apophatic theology says that it's presumptuous when talking about things beyond our understanding to say what something is. We should rather talk about what little we know by saying what isn't. I found, uh, there's a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. that kind of gets at this, actually, I think really well. He says in a, a much longer piece, he says that true peace is not merely the absence of tension. It is the presence of justice. So in one sentence, combining uh, both apophatic and, and cataphatic, it's not just the absence of tension, though that's true. It is the presence of justice, he says, pieces. And I knew I would be working with Sarah today, and I knew she would be talking about some science, which I'm always really into. I'm a biology minor, actually. Um, there's a somewhat similar line of thinking in silence, science, I think, because it's easier, of course, in fact, it's only possible to prove that something is not true. So hypotheses in science are usually phrased negatively so that you can prove them, because you can prove something isn't true, but it's very difficult to prove that something is true. And so many, maybe all theories, are in some sense things we haven't yet proved to be untrue and that we therefore think probably are true. Evolution is sort of a classic example of this. We've eliminated a lot of other possible explanations, so we think that this is probably the explanation for how life grows and develops. So when we talk about silence in our world, perhaps this can give us a sense of what we really mean. I'm not talking about some sort of platonic ideal of science, silence, but a quiet that allows us to at least know what real science, silence might be like. I'm sorry, I'm really struggling with words today. Let me take a drink. Instead, we're talking about a letting go of the words and noise in our lives so that we can appreciate their absence. And this makes me think of what silence can mean in the context of our social justice work. Often we have equated silence with complicity, with remaining silent in the face of injustice, something I spoke about last Sunday as a real issue in our world today, in our country today, and a mistake we cannot afford to make. But there's also a different kind of silence, or at least quietness, 
that is an important part of our justice work. It's the quietness of listening, allowing for others to speak, of letting discernment happen. And so all people of privilege, and everyone experiences privilege in some instance. We have the privilege of living in the United States. We have access to education and sanitation to varying degrees. There's privilege due to skin color or gender or other identities that we carry. There's the privilege of class. So many more that all of us experience in different ways and degrees. And so when you have more privilege than other with, that's the time to practice silence. Curious, engaged silence. Because being an ally means closing your mouth, at least some of the time. Listening without planning an immediate reply, as John Francis lifts up, it means learning. It means exploring the virtues of silence and letting voices that have often been silenced come to the front. It means acknowledging that for all our privileges, there are things we will never experience that others can teach us about. And we need to hear this message. And if I can say a word about Unitarian Universalists, which is a dangerous thing to say about all of us because we're so different, but I will anyway. We are a wordy people. (laughs) We like our sermons and our books, our finely crafted arguments and our lectures and our decisions. We like sharing a whole lot of words all the time. And I'm guilty. I'm not pointing the finger at myself too here. In fact, let me speak in an I statement about one thing. I often feel uncomfortable with silence, as I said to you earlier. I turn on the background noise when I'm at home, alone. And so my message to you and to myself just as much is that we need to become more at home with silence. And more at home with ritual and more at home with mystery home even with things that we cannot know and less reliant on the almighty word because facts and words and arguments alone are not going to save us if the last few years have shown us nothing else it's that it's not about having the best words and so we have to learn to embrace other ways we have to seek and discern the wisdom it takes to know when to speak up and quiet when to jump in, and when to hold back and listen. And I think that this is the beginning of wisdom, and it's a fruit of spiritual practice done in community with the support of people who love us, care for us, and will hold us accountable to our best selves. And so for this, I give thanks today to this community, to all of you, and to all the opportunities we still have ahead of us in this world. May it be so.